Well, hello and welcome back to the Australian Histories podcast. This episode will focus on the trek that Mawson, Ninnis and Mertz undertook as part of the scientific research program for the Australasian Antarctic Expedition. At the end of last episode, we learned that all the Cape Denison research teams had safely returned to the hut after undertaking their varied objectives and were preparing now for their imminent departure back to Australia. But Mawson, Mertz and Ninnis had set out on the most ambitious and distant trek, travelling out past Cape Freshfield on the eastern side of King George V land. They were expected back around the same time as everyone else, but they had not yet arrived, and now the expeditioners at the hut were beginning to worry. Indeed, they were beginning to enact the fallback plans and consider what to do should they not arrive by the end of January, the planned departure date for the Aurora. So we'll follow Mawson's team out on their trek in this episode. The following month, I will record one final epilogue to the Mawson series, which will touch on the other momentous and fascinating activities going on during and after his expedition, and also consider Mawson's legacy and influence related to Antarctica into the future. Let me remind you, as always, about the episode reference list, the images, links and other material that I will place on the website at australianhistoriespodcast.com.au and that's history spelt I-E-S. This month marks the program's first birthday. Woohoo! <laughs> it's come around so fast. Wow, it's just, it's been great fun. Sometimes exhilarating, sometimes exhausting, but I'm loving it and I know many of you are too. The download numbers continue to rise, so word is spreading. I still haven't entirely managed the work-life podcasting balance yet, but it continues to get better. And I've launched a Patreon page for those who are regular listeners and would like to support the show that way. So check that link out on the webpage if you wish. So on this anniversary, let me say a special thank you so much to all of those who've encouraged me this year with words via email or lovely reviews. And a special thanks to those who helped to cover the hosting and research costs. I really appreciate your kindness. I've got some great ideas for year two, so I'm very excited about that. But for today, I'd better get on with completing Mawson's story first. Stay tuned at the end of the show, though, for another great podcast recommendation as well. So now let's return to last episode, just as the teams were leaving the Cape Denison hut for their separate exploration tasks. And this time, we'll focus on Mawson's team. Mawson, Mertz and Ninnis were going to undertake the most ambitious and distant trek out past Cape Freshfield on the eastern side of King George V land, as far east as they could in the time allowed. So they planned on taking two eight-dog teams which would allow much faster travel than Mawson had experienced when searching for the magnetic pole last time. Mertz and Ninnis, though employed as the dog handlers, were not really highly experienced at sledging with the dog teams, except for the practice with the dogs they could get in when the blizzards abated. They left a few days after everyone else, but they made very good time, passing the southbound and the eastbound teams and occasionally seeing them at a distance over the next few days. They had the usual problems, with the sledge capsizing over the rough terrain, if the dogs were a little too boisterous, but otherwise the pace the dogs set certainly seemed to justify their inclusion for trekking, making the entire exercise much more manageable. 
Using the dogs, they could cover up to 30 kilometres on a good day. But as might now be expected in that area, the blizzards still came through and necessitated hunkering down in the tents, which they now knew might not withstand the very fiercest winds. So it was always anxious in those conditions, and the unknown days of delay could be a problem. Like Mawson and his colleagues last time, they experienced some bouts of painful snow blindness, which, by the way, appears to have been treated with zinc and cocaine. Still, I think it was that era that Coca-Cola still had real coke in it, wasn't it? I've constantly wondered what could drive you on in those harsh conditions. Maybe that might account for the Minseal. <laughs> but they had the worry of dangerous areas to cross too once actually pitching their tent for a meal directly over a huge crevasse that was covered by a firm crust of snow. Only when it cracked on their departure did they realise they had just eaten their lunch suspended over an abyss. And the dogs dragged one of the sledges off a snow bridge into a crevasse, which nearly pulled them all in, and the front sledge too, but the fellas just managed to drive their pickaxes in to stop the sledge from sliding backwards. They knew losing their food and supplies could be fatal. So they were all aware of the dangers and they took all the precautions that they could. But it was a risky business. One month out, they had travelled 480 kilometres to Cape Freshfield and they were pretty happy with their hard but manageable progress. They decided to cache some return provisions there and to make a final lightweight push a little further east before turning for home base. But on December 14th, Mawson recorded in his diary, A terrible catastrophe has happened. Mertz was scouting ahead on his skis. Mawson was riding on the sledge, making some notes as they travelled. And Ninnis was a few metres behind, walking along beside his dog sledge. Mawson said he heard a dog whimper, but he paid it little attention, thinking Ninnis behind him may have applied the whip. But when Mawson next looked up from his notebook, he saw his sledge was approaching the now stopped Mertz, who was looking back towards him. When Mawson turned to follow his gaze, he was shocked to see no sign of Ninnis. When they investigated, they saw a huge crevasse had opened up, apparently taking Ninnis, his sledge and dogs. Mertz on his skis must have slid right across it without cracking the surface. Mawson's weight was also spread across the runners on the sledge, but Ninnis was jogging along beside his kit and he must have breached the crust covering the huge crevasse. Looking in, they could see only two dogs on a ledge very deep down. One appeared dead and the other dying, and there was food bags and the tent and other debris around them, but devastatingly no sign of Ninnis. Using some fishing line, they measured the depth of the ledge at around 45 metres, but they had no rope long enough for that. Ninnis must have been way deeper than that 45 metre ledge anyway. Apart from the ledge, the walls seemed completely smooth and receded into darkness beneath. Though they called and listened for some hours, they finally had to accept that Ninnis was lost to the crevasse in a fall that was sure to have killed him. They took readings to mark the location, then Mawson read a burial service for him there. His loss was devastating to them both, but Mertz had quite a special bond with Ninnis, and he would have been particularly upset. 
Though they must all have known the risks, the actual reality would have been horrifying. The more vital provisions were generally carried on that second sledge, on the assumption that the lead sledge would be most likely at risk in this scenario. Along with their comrade, they'd also lost almost all the food, the shovel, the tent, the dog food, and the strongest sledge and dogs. Though they had missed plummeting into the crevasse themselves, they were now in grave danger. They were left with only about 10 days food, their sleeping bags and some of their personal items, and a spare tent canvas but no poles. Fortunately, they did have a stove and some fuel, which was needed just to melt snow for drinking water. Mertz did lose his Burberry overpants though, which he wasn't wearing on that day. These were an important piece of kit for keeping warm and dry. They had more than 840 kilometres to cover in the elements. Once they'd gathered their thoughts, they knew they had to make a dash back to the cached food if they had any hope of survival. They were some way inland at this time, and Mawson had the option to head north to the coast, where they might have animals to sustain them, but it would have been a longer journey, and while having the Aurora search the east coast was the backup plan if they didn't return, sea ice may be present, stopping the boat getting close enough to see them anyway. They decided their best hope was probably returning over the ground that they knew, and using the remaining six dogs for food as they progressed. Travelling at night on the firmer snow cover, they sped back to the cached gear, collecting the supplies, including a shovel, another highly valuable tool for their survival. They moved on as fast as they could manage, the dogs pulling the sledge, and when necessary, killing the weakest dog and feeding it to the others. But progress was too slow, and they were weakening all the time on their limited rations, in the difficult terrain and weather. In late December, they had killed the last dog, still with around 300 kilometres ahead of them. They cooked up everything they could, including, and dog lovers, you may want to turn away just now, making broth from the bones, though the more disturbing bit to read was the comment that the dog's paws took the longest to cook. No wonder Scott would balk at using man's best friend as transport and then as food. They then ditched almost everything that was not purely required for survival and navigation to lighten their load and they continued on hauling themselves. On Christmas Day they cheered themselves by fantasising about the wonderful fare they would indulge in in Christmas's future and Mertz wrote, quote, I hope to have many happy Christmases with my friend Mawson, unquote. but by the end of the month his exhaustion had advanced into a crippling illness. Mawson worked hard to support Mertz, particularly trying to keep him positive, as losing hope would mean certain death, and feeding him choice bits of food. But he became so weak that they could only progress if Mawson actually hauled him on the sled. By early January, Mertz could not even get himself into his sleeping bag unaided, and Mawson himself was now suspecting they would both die out there, still so far from safety. He wrote in his diary then, I don't mind for myself but it is for Paquita and for all connected with the expedition that I feel so deeply and sinfully. I pray for God to help us. I think we can see here a lot of guilt now about bringing these men out to undertake the high-risk activities and in expecting his fiancée to support him and now bear this loss when he may have stayed home and made a happy life, perhaps. 
Though Mawson continued to feed what he could to the almost completely incapacitated Mertz, his continuing decline was obvious, falling into fits and confused agitation. On January 7th, he became quite delirious, trying to leave the warmth of the sleeping bag and fitting. Mawson records him becoming calm again around midnight, and so got himself into his own bag for some rest and warmth. Two hours later, he reached to check on Mertz and found that he had died. He noted in his diary, quote, Death due to exposure, finally bringing on fever, result of weather exposure and want of food. He had lost all skin of legs and private parts. I am in same condition and sores on fingers won't heal, unquote. Mawson now had to take stock of his own survival likelihood. He was in pretty bad shape himself and must have been in excruciating pain a lot of the time, but he felt prepared to continue. Again, he recorded the site, buried Mertz, piling up snow blocks to mark the place, and read a burial service. Then, using his pocket knife, he cut the sledge in half and fashioned a cross out of the parts of the runners. I saw one of the sledges from that era in Mawson's Hut Replica Museum at Hobart, and doing that task with a pocket knife in his weakened state must have been quite a feat. The respectful gesture of creating a cross was probably beyond the call of duty, really, given he should have been saving every ounce of strength to give himself any chance. But these things were important, and the lighter cut-down sledge would be necessary for his forward travel anyway. In later years, there was a lot of speculation about Mertz's death. It may have been enough to say he simply starved, given the number of calories in, versus the number they must have been expending simply to keep warm. And without the Burberry overpants to keep him dry, he would have been perpetually chilled. But the most convincing arguments revolve around probable poisoning. A 1969 Australian Medical Journal paper by Cleland and Southcote concluded, quote, Examination of the records of illness of Mertz and Mawson has produced evidence consistent with the hypothesis that they were suffering from acute hypervitaminosis A. Now that means an excess, indeed a toxic dose of vitamin A. In each case there was severe skin desquamation. In Mertz's case there were fits and other evidence of some major lesion of the central nervous system as well as gastrointestinal manifestations, pain and dysentery. In the case of Mawson, there was hair loss and gastrointestinal symptoms, such as abdominal pain. The illnesses are not suggestive of scurvy, as there is no reference to any gum or joint lesions, nor was the diet likely to have been deficient in ascorbic acid. No other member of the expedition was reported as having any symptoms, which could be suggestive of scurvy. The illness of Mertz and Mawson followed soon after the ingestion of dog meat, including dog liver. Unquote. It seems that dog liver is exceptionally high in vitamin A, storing and concentrating it there. Mawson was feeding Mertz the liver preferentially, as he assumed it would be better quality nutritionally and higher in calories. It was certainly easier to chew and swallow, with the other dog meat being stringy and poor. He may have thought he was encouraging Mertz's health with the good food, giving him the best, but instead he may have inadvertently been poisoning him. Around the new year, Mawson had noted in his diary, 
quote, keeping off dog meat for a day or two as both upset by it, unquote. But the actual toxicity was not known in those days, if it was the cause. Of course, it was a while before that suggestion was made, but no doubt Mawson would have been reflecting on his other culpabilities anyway. He was, after all, the expedition leader, and had responsibility for the safety and survival of the men in his teams. There have been many over the years willing to blame Mawson for these outcomes. But for me, the science of nutrition was in its infancy and so not well addressed. No one knew of the dog's livers being exceptionally high in vitamin A and what that might mean. Calories were well understood and high fat options were preferred in these extreme environments, so we cannot blame him for that. The scurvy experienced by Shackleton on Scott's first outing would have led to improved quality food, including the vitamin C needed, one assumes, and Mawson seems to have taken enough food with them. The problem arose only after he lost the sledge with the bulk of supplies. They were then extracting more from their bodies than could be replenished with their starvation rations. There were some comments about the poor practice with packing the sledges, because he had not more equally shared the food on the two sledges, and the dog food too, and that probably was an oversight. And some blamed him for not insisting that they all use skis. Maybe that would have saved Ninnis from that crevasse. But that's conjecture. It may be. It was just bad luck, Ninnis being the last over that weakening crevasse covering. Often the terrain was unsuitable for skis anyway, and they would need to swap them out for crampons or other boots at various times but it is a high-risk activity in general, isn't it? Perhaps Mawson could be blamed for attempting the expedition with so many inexperienced men. Perhaps the program was a little too ambitious. But again, though one team did fail to calibrate their rations well and could easily have become casualties too, Ninnis and Mertz's death seemed to be related to the fall and the loss of the sledge. In that environment, there's no way to completely negate that risk. Mawson seemed to take advice when required, unlike Scott, and appeared to plan realistically with food and provisions, unlike Shackleton on his first pole attempt. Bad decisions were, with hindsight, generally due to the lack of previous knowledge, like um, constructing his main base at the windiest site, which he cannot seriously be blamed for, not knowing that yet. More bad luck there, I think. He was going to Antarctica to make just the kind of surveys and observations that would result in that knowledge for future prosperity. Once he was offloaded at Cape Denison, no other options were open to him anyway. All exploring teams had the danger of crevasses, and all had close calls. And they took the usual precautions that were common, such as dividing their gear, insurance style to lower the risk, and yet things will still go wrong in extreme environments ask the Apollo 13 crew. And once vital parts of your kit are gone, in these perilous conditions it is dire and sometimes unresolvable. I think potential loss comes with the job and they all knew it. So Mawson focused on the people he must not let down any further. He steeled himself, set his next goal and pushed on. The last couple of weeks had been ever slower progress as Mertz had faltered. Mawson must now force himself to power on if he had any chance of survival, or at least any chance of making it to a landmark where his body might be found and their diaries discovered for their loved ones. And so he forced himself forward in the difficult and dangerous terrain across what he later named Mertz Glacier. 
He recorded further signs of bodily stress. Quote, My whole body is apparently rotting from want of proper nourishment. Frostbitten fingertips, festerings, mucous membrane of nose gone, saliva glands of mouth, refusing duty, skin coming off the whole body. Unquote. One gruesome diary entry reported, when he removed his finisco boots to investigate his painful feet, the skin of the soles of his feet came off with them. Oh, A couple of blisters turned me into a whinging, limping mess. How did these men keep going? Apparently he just placed them back on his feet and bound them with bandages and multiple pairs of socks before the boots went back on and he set off again. Oh, gosh. Then, on the 17th of January, he fell into a crevasse himself. Fortunately, while his body had dropped through, his stumpy sledge had caught across the opening and he was left dangling at the end of his harness. He described the crevasses about two metres diameter, smooth-walled, and he was dangling a few metres below the surface. With superhuman effort, he inched his way up the ropes and managed to haul himself back onto the overhanging snow lid, covering the crevasse he'd just crashed through. But just then, the edge gave way a second time, before he could make it to solid surface, and he was back dangling at the end of the rope. I cannot imagine, in his exhausted and dilapidated state, how he did not just let the situation overwhelm him and slip into defeat. This time, he reported feeling angry. In all the days before, he had been rationing his food, desperate to eat more each time, but resisting. Now he became furious. It looked like he'd die anyway. Why hadn't he treated himself to that food while he could, seeing as now he wouldn't need it? <laughs> Unhuman's funny. But it seems that this flash of fury gave him the motivation he needed to haul himself up a second time. But once again, reaching the top, he slipped and found himself back where he began. It was then he did consider cutting the straps and just yielding to his miserable end. But in time, dangling there, he reported, remembering Providence had miraculously brought me so far, and that perhaps nothing was impossible, he applied himself to a third unbelievable effort hauling himself to the top again and on to the nearby firm snow, where he lay exhausted for some time. Afterwards, he set up some shelter and warmed himself in his sleeping bag, and he spent some time reflecting on his near death and the options for moving forward. His escape had rekindled his desire to do everything he could to make it back. Despite his anger in the crevasse, he did only eat his daily ration, saving the rest for the travel. And to prove what a man of thoughtful planning he was, he constructed a rope ladder which he then carried over his shoulder to assist in any future falls. And he did have a few more falls, which he was able to recover from, and so made progress towards the hut. Along with speculation about his blame for the deaths of Ninnis and Mertz, and the risks he may have put his teams to, there was a lot of discussion about Mawson's amazing ability to force himself on, and not give up, even knowing all those challenges he was confronted with. Certainly under normal circumstances he was a positive, determined and physically strong person. One team member, Lazeron, noted, quote, He is such a worker. From the start he has done more than any two of us, unquote. 
So certainly that work ethic and drive to keep going was evident before he even ran into trouble. He shouldered his responsibilities carefully and he seemed to have an excellent capacity to reassess and look for solutions even where giving in would have been a relief. From each setback he learned some lesson. He made a forward plan that would reduce that risk in future, like the rope ladder. He assessed his goals so that he could achieve each step and didn't allow the enormity to overwhelm him. He talked about the miracle of providence, but actually he didn't really rely on that, or luck or whatever you might consider it. Instead, to once again use Scott's handy old motto, he found a way or made one. You might reflect a little later on his personality and what you think his strengths and weaknesses were, but from my reading, he certainly was an impressive man. He was a man who would just keep putting one foot in front of the other. After several days he did increase his ration slightly to give himself enough strength to continue. And by January 29th he calculated he must be within 50 kilometres of the Aladdin's Cave food depot. Visibility and navigation was difficult, but amazingly he saw a cairn that had been built from snow and covered in a black cloth to aid visibility. There he found a note from McLean, Hodgman and Hurley, who must have come out looking for them. They had been camped within a couple of kilometres of Mawson the night before, and they had left only that morning. Doesn't that just drive you mad? Australian stories are full of explorers who missed their connection just by hours, only to die horribly of starvation or thirst usually whilst there was potential all around them if they just had the skills of the indigenous Australians or accepted their help. But Antarctica is different, of course. No one could have survived there without deliberate provisions and shelter. It's the freaky timing that makes you shake your head, though. Hall notes they probably would have seen each other had the blowing snow not affected visibility. The good news, though, was that the note did give a bearing to Aladdin's cave just 34 kilometres away now and advised that the return ship had arrived and that the other parties had reached the hut safely. And they'd left food, glorious food. But in his dilapidated state, it still took him two days to get to the depot. Despite the extra food now, he was still exerting way more energy than was helpful. As to save weight, he had discarded his crampons earlier, and now, on this surface, he was slipping and being blown over, when simply hauling with one foot in front of the other would have been a mammoth task anyway. He did finally reach the ice cave, where the team had left behind oranges and a pineapple. He reported weeping, not least at the joy of seeing something that was not white. When I told my friend about that pineapple, she reminded me there was some symbolism in having a pineapple in your home. It's considered an expression of welcome and symbolises an appreciation of friendship, hospitality and warmth, apparently. A pineapple, what a fantastic find. Mawson would certainly have been experiencing warm feelings of friendship, hospitality and warmth, finding that in the cosy cave something fresh with plenty of sugar and vitamins. Plenty of food there in general and shelter from that freezing catabatic wind. He must have been experiencing great relief physically and emotionally. A five-day blizzard came in giving him some much-needed recuperation time 
and he planned ahead for that final push. He fashioned another set of crampons and devised a braking setup with ropes so that his sledge would not get away from him on the downhill return to Cape Denison. Hall also reports him engineering at some point some kind of anti-crevasse bar that seemed to be a, some kind of pole set up that might span the crevasse if the sledge slipped into it to stop it from falling further. That's pretty impressive engineering skills for a geologist. My same friend with the pineapple knowledge had told me once something that her mum said about her dad. He's handy to have around. <laughs> Mawson and his pocket knife sure would have been handy to have around. There may have been some who would opt to make a dash for the Cape, now only 12 kilometres away, without carrying the survival gear. But Mawson knew he was still weak and he was well aware of the possibility of another blizzard coming in or another fall slowing him down and he opted to take all the usual precautions. When the wind dropped on February 8th he headed out with his sledge and provisions and while he prepared for the worst it looked like luck was finally with him. He made the long difficult descent safely towards the hut that evening. In getting closer he saw some men out working and his spirits soared. He waved to attract attention and they did spot him rushing up the hill to meet him. Having lost a third of his body weight, and no doubt looking ravaged and weathered, they couldn't even identify who he was without asking, which one are you? When usually his height would have given that away. Their joy at discovering it was their leader Mawson was soon tempered with the news of the confirmed loss of Ninnis and Mertz. Mawson learned that there were only six men still at the base. Hall says of the original expedition team they were selected. No one really wanted to stay behind for another year. Well, to volunteer outright, but all said they would stay if required. So I guess it was short straw time for those men. The Aurora had arrived on January 13th, and Davis suggested he could wait for Mawson only until January 30th, before needing to set out in time to reach Wilde's group west on the Shackleton Ice Shelf. The pack ice comes in seasonally, and if left too late, the boat might not be able to reach them. The Aurora did a bit of a sweep on the coast of the east, as planned, in the hope of spotting Mawson's team, but with no luck. We know they decided against making for the coast anyway. In the end, Davis delayed leaving Commonwealth Bay until, yes, you guessed it, the morning of February 8th, just as Mawson was making his last day's push into the main camp. I mean, truly, what is it about the universe that thinks that's funny? Davis had already made the task of collecting the team from the Shackleton Ice Shelf difficult and perhaps dangerous by waiting so long. For all he knew, his delay was causing grief at the other end for Wilde's party. Perhaps by his delay they would all die within hours of his final arrival. But being Mawson's great friend, indeed he was later to be his best man, Making that decision to leave must have been hard all the same. No wonder they all had each other sign documents absolving them of responsibility for decisions made. You're pretty much damned if you do and if you don't. So Bickerton, Bag, McLean, Madigan and Hodgman stayed behind to winter over another year and to try and locate the missing men. A sixth man had joined them from the boat, new to Antarctica. 
The Aurora had unloaded all the coal and provisions that would see them through, they had re-erected the wireless masts for continuing communication, and that ensured that the group would be safe and sound for another year. Then the returning expeditioners boarded the Aurora, and Davis had set off on the morning of the 8th to retrieve Wilde's group to the west. Mawson records he may have even seen a smudge of the smoke on the horizon as he descended, but wasn't sure what it was. After they got the exhausted Mawson into the hut, they radioed the boat to return and collect them all, and Davis did turn the aurora back. But, like many times before, sudden violent gales had arisen, and conditions now in the evening did not allow him to approach the bay. He had left the retrieval of Wilde's party to the very last minute and he couldn't wait days for a break in the weather without risking Wilde's chances further. He was forced to abandon the retrieval at the hut and to head west again. In weighing up his options there is no doubt he made the right decision. The party at the hut had a year's food, fuel and suitable shelter. Indeed, Mawson later writes, his survival was probably enhanced by the calm and quiet care he got at the hut feeling the boat trip may have done him in anyway. Wilde's group may already be at the end of their provisions and were more isolated and living on that risky ice shelf. Pack ice was closing in and access there would become ever more doubtful. Davis did ask the opinion of the rest of the team on board, while there were a few who thought he should have attempted a landing, and there are always differing opinions about the suitable level of risk to take, aren't there? They did all agree that Wilde was in the most perilous situation and heading there was the right thing to do rather than wait. Davis did successfully navigate the troublesome ice obstacles and reached the Shackleton Ice Shelf on February 23rd where Wilde's party of eight was waiting. They were loaded with no dramas and the Aurora then made for Macquarie Island to collect the fellas there before heading home. Of course, by late February, Cape Denison would have been completely inaccessible, so going north was the only option. The men at Cape Denison with Mawson would have known that, and once Davis had turned west again, they'd resign themselves to a hut life until next summer. The team at Macquarie Island volunteered to stay on for that following year to ensure that Cape Denison would have radio contact. The radio allowed them to get regular news from out the outside world, including learning about the outcome of Scott's Terra Nova expedition in February of 1913, just after Scott's ship arrived back in New Zealand. And we're going to come back to that story in the epilogue episode next month. The radio communications were not always reliable, though. Mawson noted transmissions seemed to work better at night and that the Aurora Australis, the Southern Lights, interfered with the signals. He undertook a good bit of research into the Aurora, and I was excited to see in that replica hut in Hobart a sort of a closet-sized viewing box that jutted out of the hut wall where he could sit and view the lights under cover. The first few months recovering would have been an ordeal for Mawson. Though cosy and well-fed now, he was still weak and he would have been in some discomfort as his skin regrew. No doubt sitting, laying, standing, all would have been equally uncomfortable for many weeks. At least they would have had good quality food in those early days with the fresh provisions recently unloaded from the Aurora. Mawson would have been mulling over his culpability too, as we discussed earlier. Indeed, in late March, his diary entry records, quote, I find my nerves are in a very serious state 
and from the feeling I have in the base of my head, I have a suspicion that I may go off my rocker very soon, unquote. Fortunately, he did recover his mental equilibrium during that year, and he appears to have gained great comfort from just following his bunkmates about, listening to them, and just enjoying being in their company after his ordeal. But he felt a lot of stress related to his obligations. He wanted to get the sad news to the families of Ninus and Mertz as soon as possible, and to his sponsors, and the many other officials related to the expedition, in the first instance. So, with the radio difficulties, it was April before he sent direct word via radio to Paquita. He had been writing to her a lot, though of course he'd missed the boat, so all his notes from the trek were still with him. I guess that his earlier letters to Paquita were sent with the returning team members, though. Anyway, at least those at home would have some news by then, though the family of Ninnis and Mertz would have been devastated by it. Mawson's delayed radio message to Paquita read, quote, Deeply regret delay, stop. Only just managed to reach hut, stop. Effects now gone, but lost most my hair, stop. You are free to consider your contract, but trust you will not abandon your second-hand Douglas, unquote. And of course, for all you youngsters out there, he was referring to the engagement contract. Luckily, she was still keen to honour it, waiting another year for his return no doubt delighted that he had escaped a fatal end. And if the hair loss was to be the worst of the long-term effects suffered, he'd done well. To his joy, no doubt, Paquita's return message read, quote, Deeply thankful you are safe. Stop. Warmest welcome awaiting your hairless return. <laughs> Stop. Regarding contract, same as ever, only more so. Stop. Thoughts always with you. Stop. All well here. Stop. Months soon pass. Stop. Take things easier this winter. Stop. Speak as often as possible. Aww. Sweet. Though all the scientific work was completed, probably with the exception of some data and materials lost from Mawson's party, they continued through the second winter recording weather and magnetic conditions. They wrote up their findings and they drew maps and Mawson was able to name glaciers in honour of Ninnis and Mertz. McLean undertook a project testing the tides, where he created messages in bottles and hurled them into the water. But Hall records in his 2011 book that, to date, none of them have ever been officially recovered. What a shame. One of the tasks Bickerton and Hodgman took on was to construct a memorial for Ninnis and Mertz, a large but simple cross on Azimuth Hill with a plaque commemorating their sacrifice in the cause of science. That memorial underwent conservation in the 1970s, and I believe it's still in place there today. There were always substantial chores just keeping the base running, and now they had only six fit men and a recovering Mawson to undertake them. At one point, the roof around the stove chimney caught fire, so there would have been a call to arms then, and some careful repairs required. Their second year was even more windy and harsh than the first, so it was still an uncomfortable place to be. Unfortunately, the winter proved too much for the wireless operator, Jeffries. Jeffries appears to have come down with the Aurora, bringing some replacement wireless equipment, in the hope of improving communications at Cape Denison, which that first year had had enormous trouble receiving. The hut was pretty close at that time to the magnetic pole, well, relatively, so that interference wouldn't have helped either. 
The equipment Jeffries brought did indeed improve the operation of the radio. When it became clear a team would need to stay back to look for the still-missing Mawson, Ninnis and Mertz, the first-year expedition wireless operator, Walter Hannam, opted to return home, and Jeffries, from the boat, volunteered to stay on in his place. Ayres says that Mawson actually turned Jeffries down when he applied for the initial expedition team. But here he was now. Mawson had thought him a little obsessive, and his concerns were proven correct when Jeffries began exhibiting that winter signs of mental instability. After he had secretly sent out some clearly paranoid radio messages, the extent of his illness became clear. Fortunately, Bickerton had learned some Morse code, and he stepped up when Jeffries experienced a complete psychotic breakdown, accusing all of the others of conspiring to kill him, believing himself to be the only sane one there. Dr McLean managed his care, and I think under the circumstances helped as best he could, but on their return to Australia they considered it too risky to include him in any public celebrations. Unwisely, they sent him straight home, alone, but Jeffries went missing and never arrived at his family home in Toowoomba, Queensland. In March of 1914 he was found starved and dishevelled in Stall, Victoria. He was diagnosed then with paranoid schizophrenia and was placed in an asylum. But the meticulous records that he'd kept while at the base, along with Mawson's observations, contributed greatly to the understanding of radio reception and the atmospheric interactions and impacts on radio transmissions, particularly in those special Antarctic conditions. Sadly, probably in keeping with the attitudes of his day, Mawson didn't really acknowledge Jeffries in his writings or the AAE history. But in August 2010, the Australian Antarctic Division honoured Jeffries for his pioneering winter service by naming a previously unnamed glacier after him, the Jeffries Glacier, J-E-F-F-R-Y-E-S. A bit confusing, though, because there was also one called the Jeffries Glacier, J-E-F-F-R-I-E-S, already there. In 2018, a plaque was also placed on his grave at Ararat, acknowledging his contribution in getting the radio to work and gathering that valued data. After their overwinter, the Aurora arrived to collect them all towards the end of 1913. Davis was once again captaining the Aurora and Hurley, Hunter and Correll from the original team had joined him for that return voyage. Because they could, in those few short weeks of relatively ice-free water, there was some final marine survey work to be done before the boat could head for home. But at last, they approached Adelaide on the evening of February 26, 1914, and they readied to berth there in the morning. You can imagine Mawson would have been happy to get home, but also worried about his reception. Last time, he was an intrepid explorer, returning triumphant. This time, he was a team leader who had lost two of his men, and caused another year's stay for six more, and the additional costs of the retrieval boat trip. The Australasian Antarctic Expedition did not manage to achieve all of its original objectives, failing to set up that fourth overwintering site, of course. But, while terrible luck had led to the loss of Ninnis and Mertz, the rest of the men had made it back safely, with little injury. The expedition had gathered a great deal of valuable scientific data, as intended, and, as the leader, to his relief, he was again greeted as a returning hero. People knew it was a risky business. 
but the exploration and research was considered valuable to Australia and the Commonwealth, and Mawson remained an important figure in the future of Antarctica. There really is a lot more to say about Mawson and his ongoing relationship with Antarctica. Though not strictly Australian history, there is a connection, so I do want to discuss Scott's Terra Nova expedition to the South Pole and the Norwegian Amundsen's attempt on the pole the same season while Mawson was in the Antarctic. And we really need to talk about the very exciting story of Shackleton's later adventures too, when he returned again to the South. And then finally, I wanted to tell you about some more recent Antarctic activities that have a tie back to the Australian Antarctic expedition to finish off Mawson's story. So we're going to have just one more episode to come before moving on to a new subject, an epilogue to the heroic age of Antarctic explorers. So I hope you'll join me again for that. My podcast recommendation this month is for those of you who enjoy Celtic and Norse legends. You might like the Myth, Legend and Folklore podcast with Siobhan Clark, author of the historical Viking adventure The Children of Midgard. Her podcast encourages you to journey into the past and share tales of myth, legend or lore to capture your imagination and fire your curiosity. And of course, the stories are recounted in Siobhan's beautiful Scottish accent. That's always a treat for Australians who don't get to hear that very often. The early stories are Norse tales, but more recently, Irish folk tales are being explored. So have a listen to the Myth, Legend and Folklore podcast if folklore is your thing. I'll place a link, of course, on the Australian Histories podcast webpage, but you should be able to find it on iTunes and other podcatchers too. As I mentioned in today's introduction, it has been one year since I released the first full Australian Histories podcast episode. Once the Mawson series is finished next month, I'd like to head into my second year with a new theme. Something from our convict past, to begin with, I think. So I'm really looking forward to that. I was going to outline for you the list that I'm currently working on, but then one of my listeners, Rob, who's been with me since launch, really, said he likes the surprise of each new theme. So I'm happy to oblige. That's all I'm going to say about what's following the Mawson series then but I am looking forward to a new topic. Remember, there are maps, illustrations and the reading list links at australianhistoriespodcast.com.au. If you are able and interested, there are a number of ways that you can support the program to help keep it ad-free and independent. So check out the options on the website. Now, when I finish recording here, I'm going to be drinking a special cocktail in a pineapple birthday toast to those of you who have already generously supported the program in its inaugural year. That pineapple, recounting its meaning discussed earlier, will symbolize for me not just our shared interest and enjoyment in discovering these stories, but also for celebrating your contribution to bring the show together. Many thanks, you generous folks. I drink a toast to you on the Australian History Podcast's first birthday. Mm -mm, Pineapple. (laughs) Have a safe and happy few weeks. I'll talk to you again next month with the final wrap-up for the Mawson story. Cheers. Cheers.